0: Can we be Jesus followers without the First Testament? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin, not exactly here with Paul Kimnitty and Glenn Powell. I unfortunately wasn't able to join our team for this episode, so... Paul and Glenn had the pleasure of interviewing Philip Yancey, who's a friend of ours and a member of our Board of Advisors. Philip is a best-selling author of more than 20 books, including award-winning titles like The Jesus I Never Knew and What's So Amazing About Grace. His most recent book is titled Where the Light Fell, and it's actually a memoir about his life growing up in the fundamentalist South. Philip likes to say it's kind of a prequel to all of his other books. So on this episode, Paul and Glenn talked with Philip about one of his earlier books, The Bible Jesus Read, which focuses on the importance of the first testament in the Christian life. Then they dive into where the light fell and the role that the Bible has played in Philip's journey of Christian faith. So thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Philip Yancey.
1: Philip, since we're a Bible reading podcast, we thought it would be appropriate to talk to you about two of your books in particular. The Bible Jesus Read, and, of course, your new memoir, Where the Light Fell. First, though, we'd like to take a step back and just talk about reading in general. Uh, You're an author. You've produced lots of successful books. But we know reading overall is down across the population, and Bible reading in particular is in decline, even within the church. What does it mean for a culture in general not to be a reading culture? And then secondly, what does it mean for the church not to be engaged deeply with the scriptures?
2: I guess I would start by recommending a book that was shocking to me. It's a book called The Shallows by Nicholas Carr. And he describes how we're in danger of losing deep reading, he calls it. And that's Mm. the kind of uh, reading that our civilization has been built in, uh, in science and literature and in humanities, in so many ways, and nowadays we're just surrounded by distractions. Everything is becomes a snippet. Mm. So I look at uh, people people who land on my website for a minute, for a while, and they generally tend to spend about a minute and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. I do the same thing. I just right. jump from place to place. There are so many distractions, and there are ads in the margins. There are little videos going on, and it is it is just hard to concentrate. And we're in that flipping generation. We just flip from one thing to another. I think the same thing is, is true in seminaries. It's coming out in, uh, in pastoral preparation it, rather than biblical exposition. Pastors are, are encouraged to dumb things down. Um, we're a nation of selfies now, and it has to be about me has mm. to be about self-help. If you look at the bestseller list in, in Christian bookstores, they're almost all self-help type books. Mm. Now, there are exceptions. You look at a person like N.T. Wright, and he's able to both write scholarly books and then also write books that are, that are easily digestible for a popular audience. But there, some of them, one of them I read very recently was Paul, a biography, beautiful example of a scholar writing in a popular way, but it's several hundred pages. And I wonder how many people Mm. are actually going to pick it up. I wish they would. I right. I enjoyed it. But um it it's a scary it's a scary time. We just don't know where it's going to lead because um scholarship has been based on that deep reading that is now a precious commodity.
1: Mm. So actually we kind of have to be countercultural in this way, right? I mean we, when I think when the church thinks of itself, it realizes that sometimes in the moral realm, it has to be countercultural. You just can't do and behave every every way the culture in general does. Um, but in this area, I'm not sure we think about being countercultural, that we have to be deep readers. I mean, the the revelation God gave us is a, a written book now, and it, of course, can be accessed by audio, which is actually a great way to access it. But It's another part Mm. of being countercultural,
2: right? You're right. And it wouldn't be the first time, go back to the Middle Ages, and you can visit uh, some of the museums in in Britain, especially, and see these illuminated manuscripts. Mm. Uh, The monks copying these manuscripts, when there wasn't a printing press yet, invented, they're the ones that kept civilization alive, and they certainly kept uh, theology and and biblical studies alive, painstakingly copying in, in beautiful manuscripts these books. And uh, that was countercultural. It was in the middle of the Dark Ages. Very few people could read, but they devoted themselves to it and, and kept that part of
3: civilization alive. And maybe we're called to do the same thing now. Yeah, I think we have a, a history of that in the church specifically you know around the area of literacy so if you go back to the 2nd and 3rd century and you read that history it was actually church fathers that were spearheading and championing the uh the creation of a codex you know moving from right. scrolls to something that people could hold in their hands and something that would be more accessible so the church took the lead there and I think it begs the question whether or not the modern church could pl- perhaps play a role in in some way in this whole literacy field. Right. Philip, um, I want to discuss uh, with you, we want to discuss with you uh, one of your earlier books um, mm. and um, one that maybe you're less famous for. Um, it's entitled "The uh, The Bible That Jesus Read. I think it was like back in, still in the 1990s, wasn't it, when you wrote that? Well, you were working for Zondervan, so I'll trust your memory on that, part. <laughs> there you go. That's a good I, answer. I do. I think, I think it was the late... <laughs> yeah, he, he throws it back to me. Yeah. Um, I think it was in the the late 1990s. But, um, you know, I, 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 I love the title of this, and I must confess that the first time I read it, you know, I had to think twice. Um the, the Bible that Jesus read, um, and of course, you know, it came to me, you know, pretty quickly that you were referring to what, you know, we call the the First Testament. And um, it's fascinating that you wrote an entire book around the Testament that I think even today is in, sadly, in most places, considered secondary to uh, to, sure. to the New Testament. And uh, it, it's an underutilized part of God's word. You know, we work with a lot of churches. Uh, I talk to people that say our pastor hardly ever preaches out um, of the whole Testament, out of the Old Testament. Out, out of the, uh, Old testament. Um, but you're a big fan, and um, hmm. in fact, I think—correct uh, me if I'm wrong—that you've you've actually said that that this Testament is is a favorite of yours, which sounds a little scandalous. Um in, in spite of the fact that um that it, it is riddled with its own own scandal and um people who you know work in the area of apologetics say, oh my gosh, if we could somehow just uncouple the old testament, it would sure be easier to make the case for uh for Christianity. But talk to us a little bit about um your experience, why you love uh the first testament and um and the impact that the first Testament has had on you.
2: Sure. There, I'll start with a saying that you may have heard before, kind of tongue in cheek, but the reformers discovered the old Testament or the Hebrew Bible that you're talking about. The liberals discovered the gospels, the evangelicals discovered the letters and the charismatics discovered the book of Acts. Wow. <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the church and different divisions in the church, uh, just gravitate to parts of the Bible. And the Bible has that breadth where yeah. you can do that. You know, you can you can focus. I remember I lived in Wheaton for about eight years, Wheaton, Illinois, where Wheaton College is located. And there are a lot of churches there. And I remember driving around, just looking at the sermon boards, you know, they would have <laughs> the little sign out front on today's sermon is on Romans 8, 28 or whatever. And almost all of them were taken from Paul's epistles. Almost all of hmm. them. In fact, I started calling it the dirty part of the Bible, because when people open their Bibles, they tend to go to the letters. They tend to go to the epistles, and so uh, if if you just look at the at the side of the Bible, that's the that's the part with the finger grease on it, because that's where people keep hmm. going back. <laughs> and and evangelicals uh, coming out of um, Oh, I don't know what it would be—British rationalism or something—but they had uh, they, they gravitated toward Paul's very direct, left-brained style. Mm. Paul w- was a complicated writer; he had very complicated sentences, but he was clear. He knew exactly where he was going, and you can easily outline most of Paul's epistles. Uh, you you can't really outline Jesus. He's all over the place. He's elusive. He tells stories. He doesn't. You know, people walk away shaking their heads. Uh, from Paul, they walk away uh picking up stones because they don't like what he says, but they know what he right. says, you know. <laughs> With Jesus, you're never quite sure what he says. And um the the Bible Jesus read that title, it is just a memory that the whole New Testament church that was their Bible. Uh that's all they had. Uh gradually over the decades letters came along but you know it wasn't considered part of the bible at the time that came later several centuries later when they, the church finally defined exactly what should be in the canon the fact is you you can't really understand a book like matthew with its mm. many many old testament allusions without knowing the old testament you can't understand the book of romans without references paul very carefully Grounds his argument in Jacob and Abraham, you know, all these references to the Old Testament. You can't understand the book of Revelation without reading Daniel. And and that was true of of Paul, it was true of Jesus. That's the background that they had. You you also don't, don't get the thread, the big picture, the thread of God's plan to restore the rupture with humanity. It's very clear if you read the whole book. He starts with a the family, then it becomes a tribe, and then a nation, and all of that becomes a background, a historical background to the incarnation, the, the one great event in human history. And the church is kind of the, the, the last phase of that, but uh, you can't start with the last phase without really understanding what went before.
1: Yeah, Philip, one of the challenges you mentioned in that book is that there's so many different kinds of writing. I mean, it's, it's not like you're reading through a novel that's just fun and easy to read. I mean, there's history, hmm. prophecy, wisdom, songs. Um, you tackle all those different kinds of writing in your book by taking an example from each of those categories. Um, is it important for readers to have a different strategy mm-hmm. for reading the different books that make up the First Testament?
2: I think there is. I, I think of my own reading, just, just apart from the Bible. You know, sometimes I read fiction, sometimes I read poetry. I don't usually read songs, but I'll, and then mm. I read nonfiction, and sometimes very uh, pragmatic, you know, what, what camera should I buy next, and sometimes uh, very dense philosophical books. And the Bible has all of that. It, it's yeah. a library. It's a spiritual library mm. that includes all of that and more. So you take a book like uh, Proverbs, Proverbs is very formulaic, comes in these little uh, proverbs, you know, that that say this is this is what will happen if you are a good person, then you'll be rewarded. And that all sounds fine. And then then you go back and you look at Solomon's life. It's like Solomon made a point of breaking all of the proverbs that he came up with. (laughs) You know, right? Right. And the Bible is so realistic, like that. It'll it'll tell you the truth, but at the same time, it'll tell you the people who who don't measure up, who fail. And it's got that great variety. There are short stories in there, like Ruth and Esther, that are part, kind of marginal parts of this long history of of God restoring the planet, restoring relationships. And then there are very personal parts, like. A lot of people skip the parts of the, ten, the Pentateuch, like Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, because it's it's tough sledding and hard to figure out how relevant that is to us. Mm. But compare Leviticus, which is mostly just straightforward laws and interpretations of those laws, with Deuteronomy, which is Moses' kind of swine, swan song. After years of leading the Israelites, he realizes he's going to die, so he He gets up and gives this oration where he scolds them. He defends himself. It's kind of like one of our presidents, you know, like President Nixon right before he resigned saying, let me tell you what really happened. You know, here's my chance to here's my chance to unload on you guys. (laughs) And I'm I'm so glad that uh, we don't just have the kind of the Constitution language in Leviticus, but we also have that passionate, very personal interpretation of that in Moses. Or take David. As, as a kid, I loved reading his adventure stories. Who doesn't want to, uh, you know, tackle lions and, and knock down Goliath and things like that. But then, uh, then later you realize he wasn't just one of these one-dimensional warriors. You read the Psalms, the songs that he wrote, the poetry. It's beautiful stuff. And if you don't have that history, the history of David and then the kings who followed David, you have no idea what the prophets are about you you really need the whole book and and uh-huh. I, i'm just delighted that yeah that the bible does have have that variety of genres because sometimes i'm in a dark mood sometimes i i need some of those emotional songs and sometimes i need uh, a kick in the pants and whatever i need it's it's there in the bible
1: Philip, that you didn't start off really loving the first part of the Bible, mm. the Bible that Jesus read, but after after going through it, and, and perhaps you can even talk about your experience with uh, producing the student Bible, mm. which forced you to go through the whole Bible, um, how, did, how did you come to love it, and do you think that it does something that the New Testament can't do?
2: I do. Um... I was put off by the Old Testament, as many people are, because there are some problem parts of it. There's there's a story Mm. of of God's love, his contract or or covenant with the children of Israel. But there's there's violence and genocide and racism. You know, uh, Ezra breaking up marriages of any Jews who were married to non-Jews, you know, Mm. tough stuff like that. But I, I learned to realize it's, it's just an honest depiction of life. It's got family feuds and wars and all this stuff. And, and it doesn't claim that God approves of all of these things, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it's not a propaganda book. It says this is what happened. This is life. And uh, there are a lot of things that I'm sure displease God that happened that are portrayed in the Old Testament. Things like uh, uh well the the psalm one thirty seven where where the psalmist says against mm. his enemies, Oh daughters of Babylon, if only I could take your babies and bash their heads against the wall, man, that's pretty pretty awful stuff, but as as c s Lewis said, <laughs> yeah. it's better to get it out in in a poem like psalm one thirty seven than to actually do it you know <laughs> i mean we've all we've all been right. uh, Frustrated by injustice, and you want, to, you want to do something about it. But uh, as Paul later reminds us, vengeance is God's, not, not ours. But it, mm-hmm. it, it, includes, it includes all of that. I mentioned in the, uh, I think it was in the, in the preface to the book, that I was writing it at a time when my father-in-law, so my wife's father, was in, in great health decline. He had a neuropathy disease and several other problems. And his life was just leeching away from him. And he was a devout man, had been a missionary. And after he died, his wife, my mother-in-law, gave me his spiral notebook where every day he wrote his spiritual journal. And I went through that uh, page after page for a year and a half and found that there are only two times did he reference a passage from the New Testament? It was full of scriptural allusions and and quotations because he knew the mm. Bible well. But at a time like that, he felt like Job. You know, <laughs> he did, he didn't want to go to yes to Paul's upbeat. Uh, you know, I can do all things <laughs> through Christ who strengthens me. You know, I mean, he he, he wanted just to <laughs> hang on to life, and he wanted to know why God was making. Mm. Him go through this kind of stuff, so he found he found his place, his emotional place in, in the Hebrew Bible, because it, it is such an honest book about failures and, and pain and and just life, uh, losing children, all of anything that we've experienced is is reflected there, which is remarkable because uh, most books from several thousand years ago don't have they certainly don't have that breadth. And they tend to be more, um, less realistic, more propagandistic. And the Bible, especially the First Testament, is not.
3: Yeah, how much poorer would this story be, and how much poorer would our stories be if in our ancestral lines there wasn't an Abraham and uh, a Moses hmm. and a David, and you know what would we do without the Psalms? And then you know every good story um, begins kind of leading towards a climax, and Jesus is the climax of this story. But if people only again read the Jesus story, and we hear that all the time, you know, let's just just read the Gospels. Uh, you know, spend five years in the Gospels, and and then you'll understand what Christianity is is all about. But it seems to us that uh, we we do need to begin with all of the mm-hmm. longing that is kind of stored yeah. up in the first testament. <clears throat> yeah, and then I, I find used to argue with uh, uh, Tony Campolo, uh, because he kept
2: talking about red letter Christians. You know, let's they, oh um, yeah, you know the black letters are important too. Let's not forget those black letters. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, they they give the context to to the red letters. Right, they I mean sure that's do. that's where the The full meaning came from, yeah, that's great, yeah
3: Philip, uh, let's segue to uh your latest book, um Where the Light Fell, and um you've uh positioned this as a memoir, and talk to us a little bit why you wanted to write a memoir. Um, in the first place, I'm assuming as somebody who's read the book, and it, I, I will say to people who are wondering, it is a page turner, and at times it feels mm-hmm. like a train wreck. Um, it, it, uh, it's interlaced with grace, which uh, I know is one of your themes. But talk to us about why this was important and, um, and the process for you, you know in terms of writing it and and hmm. the impact that it's had on you. As, as a writer,
2: it. I've for a long time wanted to capture the subculture that so many of us shared, that evangelical subculture of camps, uh, summer camps and Sunday school and uh, revival meetings and Bible readings and Christian books. You know, the, it, it's really... It really was a major influence on American culture. It's fading now, becoming more of a minority influence. But from the 1950s on, it, it, it was the, the most vital, certainly religious, movement going on in the United States. Mainline denominations were, tended to be in decline. Catholic was holding steady, but the evangelical movement was just booming. And then, of course, that was transferred overseas as well. Well, I I later realized that the slice of what I grew up in was pretty extreme. It was Southern fundamentalism. It had some heresies just right at the core. I didn't realize it at a time when you're a kid, you grow up, you just believe everything the adults tell you. And then I had some unusual family situations as well. Um, A father who died when I was just a year old uh, because of a theological error, I'd have to say. And... Mm. Nowadays, I, I find, um, I run into all sorts of people who, who are what's often called ex-evangelicals. Scholars estimate there may be 25 to 30 million of them in the United States. They grew up in that same subculture, but for some reason, either the way the church treated uh, gay people or divorced people or, or what, kind of an anti-science view in the church, for whatever reason they left. And they still have kind of wistful memories, nostalgic memories about growing up, but they were wounded either by the church or by their family um, and, and just tossed it away. And my story, in most cases, is, is more extreme than theirs. The, the wounds that I got from the church because I was so saturated in it were, were deeper. And some of the family situations were more more toxic. But it's a story of, of hope. I remember a line I came across in a Dallas Willard book. Uh, I think it was in Divine Conspiracy. He was talking about Romans 8, 28. And he's, he said a lot of people, when they read that, they, they think it says, if you love God, only good things will happen to you. It doesn't say that at all. It says all sorts of things, good, bad, and ugly. May happen, but God can use them all for his purposes. And Paul goes on to talk about the things that happened to him. And of course, they included snake bite, shipwreck, torture, prison, <laughs> and execution. Mm-hmm. And and um and then Dallas mm-hmm. Willard gives this line. He says, For those who love God, nothing irredeemable can happen to you. And I love that line, because it, it it's exactly what the Bible promises. Nothing that cannot be redeemed. Our whole faith is based on mm. the worst thing that could possibly happen in history, and that is the murder of God's Son. But we now call that Good mm-hmm. Friday. It was redeemed and actually redeemed the whole planet. And then, of course, it was, it was uh, put into a very different perspective by the resurrection. So I wanted to get my story out as a, as a story of encouragement and hope and i also found that a lot of things i was going through coming of age in the, in the 1950s and 60s were were coming around once again you know the divisions in our country the political divisions the protests on the street the the um racism that's surfaced once again uh, i grew up in the middle of all that and and now here we are 40 50 years later kind of revisiting those those same issues so i i just wanted to capture that moment in time you know, from the from the viewpoint of my life which is uh, of course when you're growing up it seems normal later i found out it was pretty abnormal <laughs> so, <laughs> right so, yeah i i i wanted to capture that and uh what i have found <laughs> is that it sparks responses about the readers lives when the people when people write me they don't usually write about something i wrote about myself they write about something that was Mm. triggered by reading my memoir in their own life and uh of course that's what a writer loves Mm -hmm. that that of making a connection with the reader
0: all right well this wraps up the first part of our conversation with philip and the good news is that you won't have to wait two weeks for the second part I guess you could say we've got a little bit of Christmas spirit, so we're going to give you two episodes this week. So check your podcast app, and you should already see episode 38 in there, and if not, it'll be up shortly. This episode, as always, is brought to you by Changemakers, which is our community of donors who have pledged monthly gifts of any amount to help us change the way the world reads the Bible. If you've been thinking about joining Changemakers, now is actually a great time because we've had a generous donor offer to match a year's worth of donations from new Changemakers who sign up between now and December 31st. So if you sign up to give $20 a month, which would be $240 a year, your impact will actually be doubled to $480. $50 a month goes from $600 impact to a $1,200 impact etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So if you're interested, uh, you can take a d- deeper look at Changemakers and go ahead and sign up over at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. And don't forget, the matching gift goes away on December 31st. That's going to do it for us this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.